There are any number of reasons you might consider selling your home. To move closer to family, live within a smaller budget, or just wanting a change of scenery. Whatever your reasons, having to figure out all the various housing market trends in your area may not be what you signed up for. That's where an agent who is a Realtor comes in. Realtors have the expertise to help you find the right price and navigate the process to sell your home in a way that's right for you. That's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors. Hi, this is Julissa Arce, Crooked contributor, author of Someone Like Me and all the other amazing books I've told you guys about. I am coming to you from the big Crooked studio. This is a very big deal. Crooked conversation from the big Crooked studio. And I think it's only right that we are in the studio because this is a very important conversation about the state of DACA. Um, I'm very excited to have this conversation with um, two just very amazing, important people. Our first part of the conversation is with Jin Park, who made history becoming the first DACA recipient to receive a Rhodes Scholarship. And I really enjoy this conversation so much with him about what it's been like to live having DACA in this uncertain times. And in the second part of the conversation, we'll speak with Kamal Esaheb, who is the Director of Policy and Advocacy at the National Immigration Law Center, about where DACA stands right now, about where the different lawsuits that are making their way through the courts will go and what a possible solution for DREAMers might look like in the next year with Democrats um, holding the House and what things might look like beyond that in, in 2020 when we hopefully will have a different Democrat precedent. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. Um, so Jen, thank you so much for joining us today. I'm very excited to speak with you. You know, we, we first met in 2014 <laughs> yeah. when you received the Ascend Educational Fund Scholarship, right. and it's been a real treat to mm. watch you blossom and succeed in spite of all mm. the shit that you've had <laughs> to go through. Mm. Um, so it's really, it's really such an honor to to speak to you um, you on this cricket conversation. You've made history becoming Mm. the first DACA recipient to earn a Rhodes Scholarship. Mm. And so congratulations. Thank you. And and we'll we'll talk about that Uh um, in a little bit. But first, tell us, um, tell us a little bit about your experience coming to the U.S. at the Mm. age of seven from Mm. South Korea. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What were those... What were those first few years like yeah. for you? Yeah, no, and Julissa, thank you so much. I think I was most excited for this interview because, like, talking to somebody like you who understands some of these core kind of tenets of the undocumented experience, I think a lot of journalists, even though it's gotten a lot better um, through people like you and Jose Antonio Vargas telling their stories, it's still not, it doesn't really, it's not, journalists aren't really, um, still really good at humanizing our stories. So I'm, I'm really excited for the conversation. Um, right. And so Thanks. coming to the U.S. when I was seven from South Korea was, I don't, yeah, I, to be honest, I don't really remember a lot of it. I remember kind of these really kind of formative moments of my parents telling me, oh, we have to go to the U.S. because at the end of kind of the the century and, and the beginning of the, of the 2000s, East Asia had a big financial crisis, so markets were insolvent, um, and so employment opportunity was really hard to come by at that time. And so because of that, and also because my parents just wanted to give me some better opportunities, we came to the States 
on a tourist visa, right? <laughs> Contrary to popular mm-hmm. belief, which is how like 40% of undocumented people get to the U.S. Um, and overstay yeah. their visas. Um, in the beginning, yep. I think it was really, it was strange, Julissa, to be honest, because going to school, uh, going to PS26 in Queens, <laughs> going to public school was really, it was strange. So I remember the first day I walked in right unknowingly to a classroom because that's where they kind of heard at us. And somebody comes to the front of the classroom and says, oh, Jen Park. I, don't, I, don't, I think they completely butchered my name, whatever it was, but that mm-hmm. you have to leave. And so obviously I didn't understand any of that. And it turns out I had to go take an ESL exam. But, right. So th- those initial moments of just feeling like you're in like a completely different planet um, were the things that really stand out to me from my childhood at that time. Hmm. Yeah, I mean, I it's something um, interesting you said about sort of forty percent of undocumented mm. people come to this country um, through some sort of visa that later expires, right. and then that's how we become undocumented, mm-hmm, right? I think mm-hmm, whenever mm-hmm. we talk about like border security and building yeah. a wall, I'm always like, well, how high does this wall have to be? Because <laughs> I came here on a plane. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> exactly. And um, you know, I I distinctly remember the day that I found out mm. that I was undocumented. Mm-hmm. I was fourteen years old, and I don't think that I that I knew mm. at that time what being undocumented really meant mm. and what it was going to mean for my life going forward. Mm. But I remember the moment that it happened. So I'm mm. wondering for you, yeah. was there like a specific moment yeah. when you found out you were undocumented or did you always know? What, yeah. what was that like? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, and this is a really interesting question, right? Because a lot of us, um, a lot of undocumented people have the moment, right? It's like at the DMV or at school or applying to college. But so, so I had, I think, one of those really emotional moments. But before I say that, I think I always kind of knew there was something off, right? I would hmm. see my dad come home completely white-faced because he was running away from his restaurant because... Like Mm. some restaurant next door just got raided by ICE. And my mom telling me, just, Jen, don't don't talk about your, like, if if people are talking about traveling, just don't talk about that. Don't fool around next to police Mm. or whatever. Right? And so I knew something was off. And and exactly as you're saying, at that time, the language, like the public culture on immigration was not such that... I even had the language to process any of yeah. this, right? And so when when people like Jose and right had that timepiece, and you wrote your book, and like when people started talking about what this thing is, immigration status, being undocumented, that's when I realized, oh, th- okay, so this must be what's happened to me. But I think right. if I had to point out a moment in high school after my sophomore year, I was working as a volunteer at a at a really big hospital in New York City um, as a volunteer. I was at the, kind of the cancer wards. So I was a volunteer, um, and the volunteer director just brings me into her room randomly and right sits me down on like really this really nice chair and goes to me, oh, Jen, we don't let illegals participate in our program, mm-hmm. so you're going to have to leave the hospital. And so, and, and I think that's the first moment I had that word kind of right, deployed <laughs> on, on me in my yeah. life, Ill- the, the legal word. Um, yeah, and so that's kind of like the first moment that I was overtly faced with it. But I, I have always known, you know, Julissa, I've always, there was something off that I knew that um, about our family situation. Yeah, well, you're very, I mean, you're, you're, it was very intuitive, Evie, because mm. frankly, like, I don't, I don't think I knew. Mm. Like, I, Mm-mm. I just, I mean, I knew that I wasn't supposed to say anything, right? Yeah, and my mom exactly, would be like, exactly. oh, if people ask you, you have a student visa. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And then I would be like, oh, yeah, of course, like if I'm here, mm. then that means like I'm supposed to be here, mm-hmm, you mm-hmm. know, especially because I don't have um, as, as you know, I don't mm-hmm. have that sort of um, experience of mm. crossing the border and kind of knowing yeah, how yeah, I yeah. got here. Right? For mm-hmm, me, it was mm-hmm, like mm-hmm. it was just another trip. Mm-hmm, like I just mm-hmm, came to visit mm-hmm. America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I think one of the big things here is that like in New York City, um, even when I was growing up, the kind of public institutions, right? So f- most concretely, public school, the New York City Department of Education, actually at that time enforced a policy where nobody in the school is allowed to al- ask you about your immigration status. So I think those kinds of things kind of helped me get by without having to face it directly, right? Face to face. So it, were, it was only yeah. these kind of ancillary personal things from my from my parents and from the immigrant community in New York that I, I kind of knew that something was off. But I think it's important to say that, I mean, the reason that I was able to come this far, right, is par- partly because of New York City's public institutions, I think. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, you're very, you're even very modest when you say you were, you were volunteering <laughs> at, mm-hmm. at a hospital in New York because, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. I, I know that it's more than that. I know that it's, it, was, it, was, it was a very mm-hmm. um, difficult, uh, almost internship to yeah. get at a very prestigious mm-hmm. hospital right. in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, so don't don't be modest. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks so much. <laughs> um, but you know, I hear I hear a lot of I hear a lot of young people um, mm. sort of say to me as I've traveled across the country, sort of saying to me like, sometimes I really lose hope because mm. I know that I'm undocumented. I know that there aren't a lot of resources for undocumented students to mm. go to college. Mm. And um, and so, like, what's the point? You know, what's the yeah. point of like doing well in high school yeah. if all these other opportunities are not going to be within my reach? Yeah. And you know, kind of hearing you say that you always knew that mm-hmm. you were undocumented, yeah. and at the same time, yeah. you know, you've always done really yeah. well in mm-hmm. school and yeah. academically, mm-hmm. and you've you you went to Harvard mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. you got the Ascent Educational Fund exactly. Scholarship, and yeah. now you're a Rhodes Scholar. Yeah. And so, I'm wondering, what was it? What was it that kept you motivated in spite of knowing that some of these opportunities that you were working so hard to get might not be available to you? Yeah, yeah. No, and and this is a really important question. I think, okay, so there are a couple things, right? The first thing is I knew that my story was really, I found a lot of strength in my story. So whenever I'd Mm -hmm. get discouraged, I would go back home to Queens I would just show up to my dad's restaurant, right, and just kind of like hold his hand, right? And I would, I mean, it's still to this day, it's blistered, it's cracked, and it's broken because of the the sacrifices that my parents make so that I could have a full shot at opportunity. And that grounds me. Like just doing that mm. every once in a while kind of throws off any sense of wavering anything because I know that I know what's at stake uh, concretely. But I think maybe more broadly, I've always kind of associated myself or surrounded myself with people who also similarly understand the power and the um, like the, the sacrifices that have lifted their stories up. And so staying true to my story, surrounding myself with people who are similarly engaged in that way was probably the only reason why I really got this far. So like, right, communities like AEF, and also there are a lot of now undocumented students at Harvard who have similarly mm. have come up under these circumstances. And so being next to those people have really, yeah, it's really meant a lot. I think community is probably the most important thing because I think obviously under this administration, everything is different. So many norms are being broken. Yeah. 
Um, and so finding power and truth in your own story and being able to like mobilize the kind of the truth in your story to convince others that there needs to be some kind of change. That's where I've drawn a lot of strength from. And so I'd encourage others to, to find similar ways to do so. Yeah, that's, um, I think that's, that's, mm-hmm. that's true. It's sort of like looking back at, um, and realizing that it's not, it's not just you yeah. who got here by yourself, right? Mm-hmm. But like the parent, the sacrifices that your parents made yeah. and the fact that like, you're not like, we're yeah. not alone. In yeah, this, exactly. You know, it's not just us that is going through this. And I think that's been one of the, one of the most, um, beautiful things that that mm. i have seen is sort of how people have come together yeah. and encouraged each other and motivated each other mm. um to know that you know all, all we can do is sort of to keep pushing forward and, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. keep trying to make things happen mm-hmm. so when when daca um when mm. daca first was announced um and uh you are a daca recipient um what what did that feel like to know mm. that finally after all these years of of not really having any status of mm. not been able to work legally in the country you were finally going to be able to um to have a driver's license be able yeah. to um go to college um i know what it was like for me yeah. when i was when i found out that texas um allowed undocumented students to go to college mm. when that law changed mm-hmm. it changed my life right mm. being able to go to college and so i'm wondering um Mm-hmm. When you found out about DACA mm-hmm. and you applied, what did that feel like? Yeah, and I, I remember distinctly the moment um, in 2012 when President Obama came out at the Rose Garden and gave his speech about needing to protect um, undocumented students who were right that met all the criteria under this program called DACA. It was it was interesting. So for me, I was right at the cusp of. So I was looking for work and a driver's license before DACA was announced. And then mm-hmm. I noticed that, that how, like, I really noticed to what extent everything had changed right after DACA was announced, right? So I had around six to eight months of not being able to find work and kind of helping around with my dad, dad's restaurant. And then having DACA and now suddenly feeling that I could do anything with my life. And so it was mm-hmm. really interesting to notice such a distinct change. But I think... You know, it's a, it's DACA is one of those things that a lot of us in the immigrant rights community feel, in some sense, ambivalent about, right? Because we have to plan our lives in two-year increments. But for me, noticing how drastic that change was pre-DACA to post was really mm-hmm. instructive. So now I could find work wherever I wanted. I could write, look for internships. I could apply to college freely. Um, and so, it yeah, it, it changed everything. I don't actually... I don't really know how to describe it other than that. Yeah, it just did. Yeah, I mean, it gives, I think, you know, what I've heard it described as sort of like, mm-hmm. it just kind of opened this door of hope mm-hmm. and opportunity mm-hmm. that um, wasn't quite like visible before. Yeah. Right, like now, now it's like this this door was open and you could see the possibilities of yeah, what yeah. could be, mm-hmm. that what, what could realistically be, right? Because I yeah. think, Perhaps like we've all had dreams of like the right. things we were gonna do with our lives, and right, right. and uh, and then it's sort of this rude awakening of like, oh yeah. wait a minute, I might not be able to do that yeah, because yeah, yeah. of mm-hmm. my immigration mm-hmm. status. Mm-hmm. And then finally, DACA yeah. um, made those things possible. feel possible yeah, and exactly. feel attainable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. No, I'd agree with that. Yeah. So you know, you've um, so now now let's fast forward to mm. what's transpired um, and you know, since since Trump took office yeah. and there's been 
so much uncertainty around the DACA programs. Mm-hmm. There's various lawsuits that are making their way through the courts. Yep, yep, yep. Um, and you, you know, you've said that it's a perpetual worry mm. if you were going to be able to stay mm. in the U.S. Mm-hmm. And now you've earned the Rhodes Scholarship, yeah. knowing that you may not be able to come back yeah. mm-hmm. to the U.S. Um, if you leave mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. study at Oxford. So can you just kind of like for the for and we're we're we're, st- we're talking to someone that, um, later on from the National Immigration Law Center mm. that is going to um, talk to us more about the law. specifically about this different mm-hmm. lawsuits and, mm-hmm. and the policy, et cetera. But from your perspective, um, how how do you go about making this decision of um, applying to this prestigious scholarship yeah. and now deciding whether whether you're going to leave the U.S. Mm. and 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 kind of tell us why you might not be able to come back. Yeah, yeah, right. So the legal aspect, the court challenges. I think right. I think it's right for um, a legal esper- expert to to explain that. But I think just broadly, right. The reason why I decided to apply to to the Ro- so last year I applied to the Rhodes Scholarship, knowing that I wasn't eligible to with the support of Harvard to just start a dialogue. Right. That's all I wanted to do. Because hmm. the Rhodes, the Marshall, some of these, and you weren't eligible because mm-hmm. the Rhodes Scholarship wasn't open to exactly, DACA exactly, yeah. Students. And so in that the original plan was to kind of bring up this application to just ask the Rhodes Trust, hey, you know, there are a lot of students with this pro- under this program called DACA, and otherwise, right? There are a lot of undocumented students in America who have a certain particular experience around the social condition of being undocumented that I think would be really valuable if, right, the Rhodes Trust is going to fund people who are going to, quote, stand up for the world, fight the world's fight. Mm-hmm. And so that was really the plan, just to just begin a dialogue between me and, right, hopefully other students down the road to maybe eventually kind of down the road change the policy. And so knowing that the next year, the Rhodes, cha- the Rhodes Trust changed their policies to include DACA recipients. I think that says a lot about the organization, right? The Rhodes Trust, how perceptive they are to these kind of provocations of eligibility. Yeah. And the fact that my year, this past application cycle, they also added these two global Rhodes scholarships so that even if you're not eligible in any jurisdiction, you can still apply for these global scholarships really speaks to the fact that and this is related to my to my how I'm thinking about leaving is there's this thing called these things called borders right that we've drawn all, all over the world and we've said if you mm-hmm. exist in one set of borders you can you're going to be treated in one way and if you don't then you're going to be treated in a different way and so in some ways the Rhodes Trust is anticipating that going forward the way that we talk about human mobility is going to be so much more complicated than just borders and so mm-hmm. It speaks to it speaks a lot to the kind of organization that the Rhodes is, but more broadly, right. how I'm thinking about it is, yeah, it's it's in line with this sense that I know where my home is. My home is Queens, New York. I'm I'm a Korean person from that community, and I'm always going to know when I think home is it's going to be Queens in in America. Um, yep. And I'm at this point. I'm I'm thinking of leaving, and and I can explore or I can talk about how I'm exploring various kind of legal channels to leave and be able to come back. But ultimately, it comes down to this. I know that my home is in America, and even if I'm not allowed back, even if I have to spend the rest of my life convincing America that that's where my home is, I'm I'm going to do that because, to me, 
this America has a responsibility to take claims of membership seriously. And this is the broader point that so, so often when we talk about immigrants and immigration in general, we fall back on the law to right, guide us on what's the right thing to do instead of our kind of broader sense of morality and what's just. And so yeah. that's and what I'm going to know. And even you know? asking, like, mm-hmm. are, these, are these laws just, yeah. right? Because I think if you look back like in history, mm-hmm. there's been so many things that were the law mm-hmm. that looking back on it, you're like, how was it even possible yeah. that those things were allowed? <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And just, yeah. And just for, just for the listeners that may mm-hmm. not be familiar with sort of like the DACA program mm-hmm. and like why we're even having this conversation about mm-hmm. you not being able to come back. Mm-hmm. So originally, um, the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals right, um, right. also people who had that um, were able to then apply for what's called advanced parole. And it would allow, um, it would allow DACA recipients to be able to leave the country, to leave the U.S., uh, but be able to come back. Mm. When DACA was terminated, um, that advanced parole went away, even, even though we know that right now um, DACA is still in place for those who already have DACA and mm-hmm. they want to renew. Um, people can still renew as of now, mm-hmm. but they cannot apply for advanced parole. Mm-hmm. So that's the question that, um, that exactly. you and I are talking about now, yep. which is if you're not able to get advanced parole and then you leave mm-hmm. because you've been undocumented in the country yeah. and because of our broken immigration laws, mm. if you leave, you're sort of automatically hit with this 10-year ban yep. and you can't come back for yep. at least 10 years exactly. because of the current laws. And this is a law, by the way, that was implemented during the Bill Clinton years. Yep, yep. Um, so that's what kind of what we're talking about yep, here. Exactly. Um, but I really, I, really, I really hope that um, in, in your conversations with, with your lawyers mm-hmm. that you're able to figure out a way to be able to come yeah. back home because this is your home. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and I think the another interesting, interesting aspect of this is, right, uh, the reason why I'm particularly kind of feel compelled to leave and, and right, pursue some of my studies abroad and then come back is because undocumented immigrants in America... We're a really diverse group of people, 11 million people from a lot of different countries. But we're all, we, we are all kind of bound to, to remain in the U.S. I mean, of course, there are a lot of conversations about how and when undocumented folks should right, think about leaving the country. But going to a country, the U.K., that's currently also thinking about these questions, mm-hmm. right? Um, yeah. Brexit is about to happen in the next couple months. It's about to be implemented in the next couple of months. And... Europe in general, I think, is also contending with this crucial fact that countries, of course, need to kind of find some way to achieve consensus or, or like right, citizenship and right, notions of the law and legality. But they have to take people's rights and human mobility seriously. And going to a country where perhaps the history of immigration is not so linked with the border, with the southern border, for me, I think, is mm-hmm. something that I'm hoping to do. Because in, in America, everything is racialized in, in, in immigration as with everything. And everything is also so closely tied with the border that it's hard to have these other broader conversations about membership, who belongs, who's American, who are we going to tr- provide the full benefits of membership. And so I'm hoping to you know go to a different country with a different historical context to think about some of these questions. Yeah. Mm. No, that's... Uh that's that's amazing. Um, so I just have a couple a couple more questions mm-hmm. um, for you. One is, I think it's amazing that 
by you applying to the Rhodes Scholarship, mm. you sort of open the gates for a lot of other people mm. in the future to be able to apply mm. and for the Rhodes um, Scholarship Board to um, foundation mm-hmm. to be able to change the the rules, right? Like, so one of one of the um, like one of the the challenges that I faced mm. when I was going to college is that there were no. Uh, scholarships for undocumented students. Mm-hmm. Like all of them asked yeah. you f- to be a U.S. permanent resident or citizen, um, and um, you know, DACA didn't really change that because right. DACA doesn't allow mm-hmm. you to apply for mm-hmm. federal financial aid. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, at the beginning, I sort of talked about how we met mm-hmm. um, through the Ascend Educational Fund, which is one of the few scholarships that mm-hmm. uh, is open to all immigrants, regardless of immigration status. Mm-hmm. Um, are there were there any other resources um, or how did did scholarships like AEF help you mm. to to get to where you are now and mm. and what would you want to say to other scholarships that aren't open to undocumented yeah. students yeah I think this is a really important question so when I applied to college I applied to like 30 schools because I knew that I likely wouldn't get in and even at that this was like 2013 2014 even at that point this was postdoc right it was still the conversations people were having about immigration and undocumented immigrants were still so insufficient. Um, and so I knew just right right off the bat that I would need to kind of broaden my options. And that's why I think I primarily applied to a lot of private colleges. And so I think, and, and right, depending on what the endowment situation is for these schools, the amount of aid that they're able and willing to provide undocumented students is different. And so these kind of other scholarships and, and right funds from foundations have a really, really outsized role when it comes to making sure undocumented students have the ability to go to college. And so without AEF, right, without um, some other scholarships that I applied to, I wouldn't have been able to go to Harvard, right? I, there's no way I would have been able to afford $58,000 a year. Um, and so I think this is, going back to your question, part of the, a broader thing that the undocumented immigrant community and also allies in general need to kind of start having, which is, why is it that these scholarships impose this random, right, qualification that you have to be a citizen or permanent resident? So a lot of these funds, of course, federal Pell Grants, these things are tied with taxpayer dollars, but, right, it it still doesn't make sense to me, for example, an organization like the Rhodes, which has a really long history and and a legacy, and they're tied down, for example, to the original will of Cecil Rhodes, they were still able to find ways to right, circumvent um, some of these arcane policies. Why is it that in America we can't ask scholarships and we can't provoke these changes as well? So that's that's something that I think an avenue that um, the immigrant rights community can explore as well going forward. Yeah, that's great. Um, so I have just one one last question mm-hmm. for you. Um, in your in your speech um, that you gave addressing your Harvard mm-hmm. uh, graduating class, you you tell your parents um, mm-hmm. in Korean, "Don't cry." Mm-hmm. And I'm about to start crying again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> because yeah. that really that when I when I when I heard you say that during your speech, that mm-hmm. was like when you told your parents, "Don't cry." Yeah. That was like my cue to start bawling. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, and you know, you talk so beautifully about your. Mm-hmm your talents being one and the same with your parents' sacrifice and labor. And I think that that's so beautiful. Mm -hmm. And I'm just wondering, and this is, by the way, a question that I wrestle with all the time, which is um, how do we sort of continue to elevate stories like like yours Mm -hmm. um, 
of sort of like the 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 very successful mm. uh, undocumented immigrant who, in so many ways, is sort of like. Um, yeah. the successful shiny uh, poster boy right. or poster girl you know when my story was coming out like how do we balance that with not then yeah. becoming the good immigrants right. and our parents um, and those that that didn't have access mm-hmm. to the opportunities that you and I have had mm-hmm. access to mm-hmm. making them the bad immigrants yeah, exactly. how do you do that as you're sharing your story and, and will be sharing your story yeah. more broadly yeah no, and this is right probably the thing that I'm thinking about the most as I'm talking about these things the biggest thing is that during that speech that what you just said was really what I wanted to to communicate and so when I told my parents don't cry it's because if they started crying I knew that I would too <laughs> and so that was really yeah. I guess more for me but I think this idea of talent right a lot of people think about it as oh these uh, my talents are those that I've developed and of course that I've had I've had help along the way but they're largely developments that I've kind of done for myself and by myself but that kind of intuition most people have in my opinion is just wrong When you think about what it means to be talented, it's so much more complicated. And there there are so many inputs, so many variables with people, of course, that you know, but also people that you don't know, right? The reason why um, when undocumented immigrants say we're here to stay, when we say that, we're, we're saying something much broader, right? We contribute to this country, the fabric of our country, through the, our education, through our health, and through our services in ways that... Um, You, it's hard. It's very imperceptible immediately. The the thousands and thousands of ways that undocumented immigrants contribute. Um, and so, when having these conversations, I always make sure to note that a person doesn't have to be a genius. I mean, I'm not calling myself a genius, right? So you don't have to be mm-hmm. a road scholar to be. I to can be, call you a genius. No, no, no. Right, but you don't have to be given. Or you don't have to be a road scholar to be given. Right, the full benefits of being a human being to be treated fairly and decently. I think that is a, a responsibility we have to everybody because just based on the fact that they're human. Um, and of course, immigration policies and, and this administration, I think, fails to, to recognize that, right? That immigrants' membership in America shouldn't be tied to how many businesses they create or right, how many papers they publish. It's just about whether or not they found membership in America. And that's right the biggest thing that we should be considering. Um, and and so much of that does get lost right this this good immigrant bad immigrant narrative is and in, in a lot of ways really harmful but i think when we talk about and when we uplift stories of quote the good immigrants we have to also cast it in this broader network of people of their talents right and our shared kind of practices and rituals that we have with each other that make those stories stories possible right as you're doing right now yeah. yep well jen thank you so much for um, being with us and i wish you all of the success and happiness and health um, in the world. I mm-hmm. I really couldn't be more more proud of you, and I am I am really excited to see all the amazing things that you are going to do and how you are going to help save the world. <laughs> thank, so thank you. Thank you so much for thank you us. so much. Thanks for having me. Thank you. I am um, still wiping tears away from my face because that conversation was amazing. Um, I hope everyone gets a chance to look up Jin's address to Harvard. It's 10 minutes long and I cannot recommend it enough. When we come back, my conversation with Kamal Esaheb from his office in Washington, D.C. So stay tuned. 
Article is an online furniture store. By eliminating the layers of traditional retail, Article is able to keep prices low and quality high. No showrooms, no salespeople, just savings. This is beautiful, well-made furniture, Scandinavian simplicity. I'm not really sure what that means, but it's, I think it means it's sleek and simple and nice. Beautifully designed, modern furniture. Article is serious about shipping. No matter how many items, every order is shipped at a flight rate of $49. Need some help getting set up? Articles has options for in-room delivery and for assembly assistance. Article has this nice, awesome couch that I saw pop up on my Insta. It's pretty nice. And um, for those of my friends that haven't gotten me a wedding gift yet, <clears throat> that seems like a great one to contribute to. Article is offering my listeners, ooh, my listeners, $50 off of their first purchase of $100 or more. To claim, visit article.com slash crooked, and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com slash crooked to get $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. So, my listeners, go check it out. So, I like to think that I'm a morning person, um, and Fernando disagrees with me because I don't wake up at 6 a.m. in the morning like he does every day for some psycho reason. And so I really like my sleep and my sleep number bed really makes those hours of sleep even better. I don't know what I would do if I couldn't sleep as well as I do. The new Sleep 360 smart bed helps everyone from parents to pro athletes improve their daily performance through proven quality sleep. I'm really getting better at those snatches and cleans and all those other CrossFit things. My sleep number setting is 25. My partner's is 50. So many couples disagree on mattress firmness. The Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed lets you choose your ideal firmness on each side so it's just right for both of you. The Sleep Number 360 beds are smart, they sense your every move and automatically adjust to you, keeping you sleeping comfortably throughout the night. Sleep Number has been ranked highest in customer satisfaction with mattresses by J.D. Power, and that is very specific. Come in during the January savings event and save up to $500 on select Sleep Number 360 smart beds. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Visit sleepnumber.com slash to find the store nearest you. A lot can happen between falling in love with a house online and owning it. Between imagining living there and breathing in your new home for the first time. Having an advocate who can help you navigate the complex world of financing, inspections, negotiating, analyzing the market, and talking through any anxieties that may pop up, that can make all the difference. That's what the expertise of a Realtor can do for you. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors and bound by a code of ethics. Because that's who we are. So Kamal, thank you so much for for joining us. I I've wanted to do this conversation specifically around DACA and the potential for renewed Dream Act efforts because I want to bring back the issue of DACA to center stage because there's so many attacks on the immigrant community that the national attention tends to move on to the latest and most cruel policies coming out of this administration. But the fact of the matter is that the threats to DACA haven't gone away. In fact, um, the potential for the end of DACA was accelerated 
even more so when the administration back in November asked the Supreme Court to circumvent the Court of Appeals and take the issue on sooner. So can we just back up for um, for a second and can you get can you provide us with some background on um, the brief history of of DACA and then take us through its termination by the Trump administration uh, back in September of 2017? Sure, sure. So in um, June of 2012, the uh, administration, then the Obama administration, decided that uh, it didn't make much sense to uh, deport immigrant youth, uh, kids who grew up here, uh, back to countries they didn't know. Uh, and it didn't, also didn't make much sense to uh, leave them here in the United States in a, in a state of limbo. So um, what was created at that point is something called the DACA program, Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. And what the program did was um, was uh, create a process through which uh, immigrant youth, people who came here before the age of 16, who've uh, lived here for a certain number of years, who could show that they are in school or they've been in school uh, and pass a background check, uh, they would get uh, a piece of paper that would allow them to work uh, for for two years and would protect them from deportation, and they can renew it on a on an ongoing basis. Uh, this administration came in. This president came in, uh, and in September of 2017, uh, issued a directive to end the DACA program. Um, and you know, we know that following the law is not a strong suit for this administration. <laughs> so, not surprisingly, we had a couple of court challenges that that have succeeded. Uh, judges have said, you know, we're not sure your decision to end this program uh, is legal. And, and so what that has meant is that, um, you know, as these challenges, as these court challenges have continued, the program has remained in place. So, um, uh, so you know, these DACA-eligible youth have been able to apply and renew yep. um, uh, their, their work permits and their protections from deportation. Um, and now we're, we're at a point where the administration is, continues to, to, to fight those decisions in court and we may see uh, this issue taken up by the Supreme Court in this coming term. Hmm. So, I mean, you, you sort of said it right that, you know, this administration is, is not very good about following the law, um, as we see almost every day with new things coming out. Um, but the, the, so the, the DACA program, though, when it was implemented, was like a very successful program, right? People, 800,000 people applied and um, they it allowed them to live their best lives. Like truly, they could um, finally do things that they weren't able to do before. Right? They could get things like driver's licenses and go to college and even achieve one of the pillars of the American dream, which is buying a home. And its termination, the termination of the DACA program, like many other things in the Trump administration, was pure chaos, right? Like DACA recipients never received an official notice um, in the mail. Uh, there were tons of confusion around who could renew. They were given a very short time frame to come up with the money for the application and to come up with dozens of documents to renew their 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 permits um and as you mentioned there were lawsuits that ensued to try to stop the end of daca so can you tell us about the three different lawsuits that are making their way through the court system and what were they able to really do to save the program yeah well they're they're 
you know, there have been multiple lawsuits, like I said, you know, uh, around the country that have, uh, you know, tried to uh, stop, uh, you know, the end uh, of, of this program. One of the lawsuits was filed by us at the National Immigration Law Center, along with co-counsel at Make the Road and uh, Yale Law School. And, uh, and then uh, another lawsuit filed by, you know, various entities uh, in, in California. Uh, and, and, and both of those lawsuits have um, tried to, to stop this administration's end of the program. At the same time, we've had, uh, you know, actors on the other side in the state of, uh, uh, you know, the state of Texas and in, in, other, in other states that are, have, uh, you know, always opposed the end of the DACA program that are, uh, Trying to take the the federal government's position that um, the 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 program should be ended immediately, and I think part of what we're looking at is the um, you know poss- you know the culmination of all these lawsuits is the possibility that the Supreme Court may take up the issue this coming term. Yeah, I mean, I think that in some ways that Texas not in some ways. I mean, the Texas lawsuit really put a lot of pressure on the administration to end DACA, right? Because they said, we're going to sue you, and so you better end it by September. And the administration listened to them, and they were very obedient in that in that lawsuit and in ending, in ending DACA. So what this lawsuit really did is to sort of lift the end of DACA for those who already had it. But it's none of these lawsuits have gone as far as to say new uh, new applicants can apply for DACA, right? Like that's still that's, not that's right. something that that has been done. That that's correct. And what what is going to be really kind of what what it looks like for DACA now in these lawsuits is at some point they're going to end up in the Supreme Court, right? Like that's kind of where this is headed. Yeah, potentially even this term, this coming term. Okay, and what is it that they are going... I mean, when you go to the Supreme Court, you're basically arguing the constitutionality of an issue, right? So what is um, what is going to be the argument, what is the sort of the constitutional argument that is being made for why DACA should end? Um, and then how are, how are we, and when I say we, I mean... You and the you and the National Immigration Law Center and uh, everyone else who um, who is going to be taking this up to the Supreme Court. What are you arguing on the other side as to why DACA should not end? Well, th- there are basically two uh, you know two two, two 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 things here. One is whether this administration uh, has uh, you know the authority to end the program to begin with, and then there's the question of have. Um, have they gone through the proper channels, the proper procedures to, um, to you know, to, 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 to terminate a program? Uh, there are lots of um, lives at stake here. There are lots of, um, you know, 800,000 people have, um, you know, a, a piece of paper that they earned because they've gone through a process and, and shown eligibility um, for, for, for this benefit. And um, it's not just their ability to, um, you know, to, to, to be protected from deportation. It's not just their ability to work. But there are all sorts of government programs that um, depend on that piece of paper, their ability to have a driver's license, their ability to, you know, have health insurance. So these people's lives, 800,000 people's lives, 
um, really hang in the balance here as, um, you know, as the government, you know, made this decision uh, really without much legal justification to end the program. And, um, and, so, and, and so just the, the, the process through which the, you know, the government can't just do that. You know, the government has to go through processes, considerations um, to, to really, um, you know, to, to show that um, a decision that's going to have such an impact is not, is not um, arbitrary. And all indications are that um, this, this, you know, this decision was just that, you know, the legal justification for uh, the administration's end of this program was, a uh, you know, a two-page memo by then attorney, you know, by Attorney General Sessions um, that, w- you know, that, that included errors. Yep. Um, and when you talk about what hangs in the balance, the lives, the futures, uh, the, you know, the various impacts, um, you know, part of what the court is going to have to assess is, was the government's, assessment was was the government's decision um you know based in you know you know was it was it well grounded in uh in facts and in law and did it go through proper process yeah i mean you know the cynical part of me um thinks like you know we're always talking about the the russian collusion case but i think there's like another collusion case here with like steve miller uh, kind of colluding with Ken Paxton in Texas to um, basically working together to bring forth this lawsuit so that then it would force the federal government to end DACA. Um, and the, the, the cynical part of me is also like, is the end of DACA just a matter of time? Because when it goes up to the Supreme Court and kind of looking at the makeup of the Supreme Court, is it just a matter of time before the program ends? And... If, you know, I hope I'm not, I hope I'm not right. I hope the cynical part of me is not right. Um, but what are the different scenarios now for saving, for saving DACA? Or is it really well, like I, we kind of have to just have renewed efforts on the legislation side um, to, to find a solution for the 800,000 people's lives who are hanging on the, on the balance here? Well, I think, you know, one, I mean, certainly the makeup of the Supreme Court has changed in the last couple of years, but I think one thing, one thing that we've learned is um, you can't assume, you know, that, that, this, that a court's going to rule one way or another just based on, you know, who sits in the court. So we're, we're not writing off the Supreme Court uh, just yet, but, um, you know, as you've mentioned, this, um, this legal limbo is destabilizing, this uh you know seesaw from one court case to another one court decision uh to another doesn't give dreamers the kind of stability um, they need to go about their lives and and the solution here is ultimately going to be legislative uh you know at the end of the day um, the ball is in congress's court uh to um, to 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 to, to lean in and do um, what has been, um, you know, on the table for over a decade. Yeah, for 17 act, years. Uh, the DREAM Act. And, you know, and certainly now that, um, now that Democrats are in control of the House, we would certainly, you know, expect them to, right out the gate, uh, take a step uh, firmly in that direction. 
Yeah. So what, um, I mean, you've said it just right, right? Like we're um, in this conversation, we're also talking to Jim Park, who's a, who's a DACA recipient um, who just earned a Rhodes scholarship. And, you know, we're talking about sort of like, what is it like to, to live your life uh, with basically your life hang, your, your life being dependent on different court decisions. And that's no, that's no way to, to live. Um, and yeah. now that, and now that the, the Democrats do hold the house, what is the policy strategy? What is going to be different this time around? Because we've had, you know, we've had, um, we've had the president, the Cong, the, the house and the Senate at one point, and we still couldn't get a dream act passed. So what's going to be, what do you think it's going to be different this time? What gives you, what gives you hope this time around? What gives me hope is is the you know the urgency of the moment you know the prospect that um, nearly a million people's lives hang in the balance um, the fact that um, you know this past election we you know you know I, I see it as in part a rejection of 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 Trumpism of bigotry of of the you know anti-immigrant sentiment that got Trump. Elected, and I'm hoping that um, the Democrats and especially the newly elected Democrats will be able to to, to lean into this issue, um, you know, more than um, you know, more than what we had seen seen them do before. Now, at the end of the day, uh, Trump is still president, um, and, um, and you know, so the 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 prospects for immediate legislative action are are you know, are, you know, are not, are not great, but, but, you know, I've, I, if I've learned anything from the past two years is to, to not be, um, you know, to, to, to not make assumptions about what's possible and what's, uh, you know, and what's feasible. I think we've seen this president, you know, in ways that are inconsistent with our values, you know, stretch the limits of, uh, of, you know, of, of, of reality. Uh, and do things that we've never conceived the president um, could do before. And I think this is an opportunity for us to, um, you know, stretch our ability to dream. And, um, and you know, despite the, the fact that the political cards may be stacked against us, um, you know, the fight is still ours to have. Uh, and, um, and, and, you know, and with Democrats in power, you know, in control of at least one chamber, uh, you know, we're... At least in a better position than 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 we had been uh, earlier in his administration. Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's right, and and also you know what you said about um, sort of the the urgency of the issue today, right? Like I think in the past, um, yes, we we talked about dreamers and we talked about the the importance of passing the Dream Act, but but I think what's different this time also is that you have 800,000 people f who for the last six years have been given a promise and they have they have made good on, on their side of the promise and they've gone to college and they've built families and they've built lives in America and and you know the end of DACA um, if it goes to the Supreme Court and it and it ends like 
what are you know what are these people going to do now and so i think that the the importance of the issue cannot be overstated um and why i also wanted to have this conversation to bring it back to people's minds like this issue hasn't gone away we all still really need to care about it and advocate for um for congress to to do something um the other thing that you said though that you know you made me all hopeful and then you were like trump is still president i'm like oh don't remind me. Um, mm-hmm. But 2020 is coming soon. And I'm wondering, what do you hope to see from 2020 candidates around immigration? I, I want to see... Um, I, I want to see a new vision for our immigration system. I want to I hear, um, you know, a, a vision that's... that's consistent with the image of the Statue of Liberty. I, you know, I want to hear, um, you know, hope for, um, you know, refugees and people around the world who are, you know, either facing uh, natural disaster or political strife or threats to themselves uh, personally or to their families or uh, political persecution. I, I want them to, to see hope. In, in our country. I want them to see hope in America. Um, and, um, you know, that's, that's always the way I've, I've seen our country. That's always the way that uh, I've wanted us to, to, to appear. But, it, you know, unfortunately, we've lost a, a lot of that uh, because of, uh, of the president we've had for the past two years. So, um, so that's what I want to see. That's what I want to hear. And I think this past election makes, makes me hopeful that that's the, that that's the direction we're headed in. Yeah, I think that's right. And, you know, what also what also gives me hope uh, is people like you and organizations like the National Immigration Law Center that um, despite all of the the challenging times that we've had continue to continue to work and and don't ever give up and and continue to make um, strikes and and lawsuits and everything else that you guys work on to make sure that immigrants in this country can live to their full potential and live the and live the lives that they deserve to live so thank you so much for being with us and thank you so much for all the amazing work that you do thank you for having me julissa Thank you so much for staying with us through this episode. I am really hopeful for what can happen for dreamers like Jin. I also just want to tell you a little bit about the Ascent Educational Fund, of which Jin Park is a recipient of the scholarship. I am the chairman of the board of Ascent Educational Fund, and we provide scholarships for all immigrants, regardless of their immigration status. So if you're looking to um, get involved, please check out our website, ascendfundny.org. Jin is one of 54 students that we've helped in the past six years. We've awarded almost half a million dollars in college scholarships. So please check out the program. It really makes an incredible difference in in young people's lives to achieve their full potential. I am so thankful to both of our guests for for sharing their personal story with us and for sharing their vision of where we might go and what solutions uh, might be available to dreamers. Please, please, please stay involved. Um, please stay abreast of what's happening with DACA because even as the national conversation 
changes and it goes from one issue to another issue and all of these issues are important. Um, what's happening with and continues to happen with family separation and with people getting raided at work and people getting deported. All those things are important. Um, and I just hope that we can continue to advocate for dreamers and for all immigrants in this country to live the lives that we're supposed to live in America. Hopeful, awesome lives. Thank you so much. Uh, we'll talk soon again. Make sure that you subscribe to Crooked Conversations, rate us, share the episode with a friend, and stay hopeful, my friends. It's one thing falling in love with a house, picturing yourself moving in and calling it home, and quite another navigating the world of price negotiating, mortgage lenders, and finding the budget that works best for you. An agent who's a Realtor can make understanding that world easier. Realtors have the expertise, access to proprietary data, and tools to help you get from imagining living somewhere to actually doing it. That's the kind of help we can provide. Because that's who we are. Realtors are members of the National Association of Realtors.